I'm Rose Skeeters, host of From Borderline to Beautiful, a show about hope and recovery for BPD. Hello and welcome to another episode of From Borderline to Beautiful. Today we're going to talk about body dysmorphic disorder for our last in a three-part series about eating disorders, disordered eating, and all things related. So body dysmorphic disorder, or BDD, is something that I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding because it's not just this, oh, I look in the mirror and I don't like what I see. And I think that oftentimes BDD gets mischaracterized as that kind of um, kind of idea or behavior. Most of us have something we don't like about the way that we look. Let's say like you think you don't like your nose or your eyes, the way you smile. Right now I got a microphone for the podcast, which is pretty cool. So I got some headphones and they're really big on my head. So I, cause I know like I actually have a small head. So that's something, right? Like I don't like that I have a small head cause it makes my headphones uncomfortable. But that doesn't mean that I have body dysmorphic disorder, right? If I just am seeing a flaw, the difference between looking at yourself in the mirror and seeing that you have a flaw and having body dysmorphic disorder is that the perceived or real flaw that the individual has consumes them. It's something that they think about over and over and over again for hours, and it feels like something that they cannot control. They don't believe that other people when people say, like, you look fine, you look wonderful, and the thoughts that they're having related to whatever their perceived flaw is causes such severe emotional distress that it impedes their ability to engage in activities of daily living. Some people have body dysmorphic disorder that's so severe it causes them to miss work and school and just to avoid social situations altogether. It becomes really easy to isolate themselves from people that love them because they fear that their flaws are what defines their character. It's important that we look at who BDD affects. It affects 1.7% to 2.4% of the general population. And so what that means is about 1 in 50 people. If you're looking at whether it affects males or females differently, it's actually something that doesn't affect one gender over the other. 2.5% of males and 2.2% of females are often diagnosed with BBD in the United States. BDD, excuse me, in the United States. So if we look at the clinical definition of body dysmorphic disorder, It is a body image disorder characterized by persistent and intrusive preoccupation with an imagined or slight defect in one's appearance. So with an imagined or slight defect. So let's say like I actually, so logically I know I have a small head. I think I have a small head if we go with this silly example, right? And so like it's not an imagined defect, let's say. It's something that's slight, doesn't really impact me at all kind of thing. So if I perceived myself to have a small head and then I hyper-focused on that perception, that would be imagined because it's not been 
looked at against like a, a, a norm, something like that, right? So it's not saying that you're imagining the perception, it's you're imagining the flaw, excuse me, or the imperfection. What it is, is you have this perceived notion that that is a defect in your appearance and it's not based in some sort of norm that we can reference or based against that. So people with body dysmorphic disorder, they can dislike any part of their body, not just their head. They often find fault with hair, their hair, their skin, their nose, their chest, their stomach, their thighs, their, if they're men with like the amount of muscle they have. So, but in reality, the perceived flaw may be only a slight imperfection or it might not be there at all. So someone with BDD, they perceive the flaw to be so significant and just it's just so much in the forefront of their mind. And then again, it causes them severe emotional distress and difficulties, excuse me, in daily functioning. BPD um, most often develops in adolescents and teens, BDD. I'm going to keep mixing those up, huh? <laughs> so it affects genders almost equally like we talked about before. Unfortunately, researchers, they don't exactly know what causes BDD. It's unclear. But there are certain biological and environmental factors that contribute to its development, just like other disorders like BPD, actually. So we have a genetic predisposition, some neurological or neurobiological factors, such as the way the um, serotonin in the brain functions. There may be a malfunction there. There might be some personality traits that contribute. There also could be life experience like trauma, bullying, peer abuse, things like that. So remember, the biggest distinction here that I want to focus in on and to repeat, actually, is that body dysmorphic disorder is characterized by a perceived flaw that is so prominent in one's mind that it impedes their ability to live. If you simply are checking yourself, you want to think about whether or not that's the thing that's consuming you if it comes alongside with having another eating disorder or with having borderline personality disorder. So people with BDD have obsessions about their appearance and it lasts for hours, can even be days upon days. And the obsession may be focused on their muscles or, you know, some sort of part of their body. And the obsessions are hard to control, just like obsessions within like OCD. So they can't focus on anything else because the thoughts are so intrusive. That's all they can think about. Over time, it wears on their self-esteem. Again, they are avoiding social situations, and they have some problems at work or school because of it. They've internalized this thought that the way that they perceive their defect or flaw in their body is the thing that other people can see in the way they see it as well. So in addition to the obsessive thoughts, there's also a component for some individuals of a compulsive or a repetitive type behavior that tries to hide or improve the flaws. These behaviors only give a temporary relief, but they are compulsions. So that means a person is compelled to do that. So an example of that would be camouflaging the body, where positioning the body in certain ways, wearing certain clothing, makeup, hair, hats, could be, <clears throat> excuse me, comparing body part to others' appearance. Seeking cosmetic surgery, constantly checking in a mirror, 
Um, people will avoid mirrors, pick their skin, engage in excessive grooming. So a, a very long showering skin kind of regimen that's above the norm, excessive exercise or changing clothes excessively. People with body dysmorphic disorder also suffer from anxiety disorders because of that isolation. And then also, as you can imagine, depression, eating disorders, and obsessive compulsive disorder, which is, you know, sort of similar in the way that it presents as BDD. Body dysmorphic disorder can also be misdiagnosed as one of these disorders. The intrusive thoughts and repetitive behaviors exhibited in BDD are very similar to the obsessions and compulsions of OCD. So the difference between BDD and OCD is when the preoccupation or repetitive behavior focuses specifically on appearance. That's how we would look at those differing diagnoses. If you avoid social situations and you have BDD, that could be due to shame or embarrassment of your physical appearance, and that's similar to someone who has social anxiety disorder, but if it's because of that perceived flaw or defect, it would be diagnosed as body dysmorphic disorder. So as you can see, if you want to get an accurate diagnosis and appropriate treatment, you have to mention specifically what your concerns are with your appearance, and that's tough because I know that um, when I was going through treatment, I never was honest about some of the real shameful parts of having an eating disorder. And so if you if you feel uncomfortable sharing that, that's something that you can you know kind of work through and do over time if you find a clinician provider that you trust. But I will say that it's hard to get that accurate diagnosis without that factor of which body part you perceive to be a flaw and like what are those obsessive thoughts and the compulsions or repetitive behaviors that you may or may not engage in so that the clinician could figure out whether that diagnosis is OCD, social anxiety, a disordered eating or eating disorder, excuse me, or body dysmorphic disorder. There are effective treatments for people with BDD and people with BDD can move on to live full productive lives. It's just important that an expert gives an accurate diagnosis in order for treatment to occur. Treatment is, it has to be tailored to each person. So I talked um, earlier about the causes of BDD and one of the suspected causes is this malfunctioning of serotonin. So people find that SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors can help relieve the obsessive and compulsive symptoms of BPD or BDD. <laughs> However, um, the medication has to be given by a provider or psychiatrist, physician who understands the nature of BDD um, because research so shows that individuals are often not given a high enough dose of an, SS an SSRI when they begin treatment for BDD. So you really want to look into a provider that has experience with BDD. Now, of course, the gold star standard for um, BDD is going to be CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, because again, CBT is one of the most well-researched treatments and it teaches patients to recognize irrational thoughts and to change negative thinking patterns. Patients, they learn in CBT, or we should learn to identify unhealthy ways of thinking and behave, behaving and to replace them with positive ones. 
So having support through individuals or organizations and physicians, psychiatrists who understand BDD, who are up to date with the latest research and being willing to try an SSRI at a higher dose in order to help with those obsessions and compulsions, because those will really keep a person stuck. You know, finding a provider that understands about that new research on the medication and enrolling in CBT, enrolling in a BDD support group are all recommended treatments. And just to know that many individuals out there struggle and suffer with this same, you know, illness. And if it's something that you feel shame about, I do encourage you to, you know, do the best you can to reach out, even if you just start trying to get to know a clinician or a coach so that you can begin the process of healing because there is hope for individuals with body dysmorphic disorder. I know that, you know, for a long time, having had so much dysfunction in my own eating, I did develop this uh, body dysmorphic disorder just in terms of my body shape as a whole. And it was something that I struggled with into my recovery from BPD because I never really could see or understand what I looked like. Over time, though, I have to say the more I became solid in my identity, the less that really became an issue. So I don't tie um, my body weight or my body appearance to my day. I don't hyper-focus on my body. I'm not kind of engaging in doing those things. Now, it's something that I could easily come right back I have skills and behaviors that I have to engage in to maintain stability and I have to be self-disciplined to them. So exercising, choosing to eat healthy foods, ensuring that I don't engage in that sugar addictive sort of behaviors. Um, It's also keeping myself busy, meaning doing meaningful things so I can create a life filled with purpose. And It's making sure that when I start feeling insecure, I don't immediately go back to these habitual thoughts of, oh, you're feeling insecure about something, so it's probably the way your pants fit, which is part of what uh, CBT works on, getting those irrational thoughts and changing those negative thinking patterns. So CBT, catch it, check it, change it exercise, treating my body right, being healthy, decreasing internal inflammation, being self-aware, having an identity, living a meaningful life. These are all things that have helped me in my own journey for BDD. And it wasn't till very late in my um, recovery from borderline personality disorder that I was able to get there. I never did take antidepressant medications for BDD at that dose that would be, um, effective in in terms of treatment. And I didn't have CBT specifically for um, body dysmorphic disorder. So had I had those, it may have taken me much less time. So I was very encouraged to go on YouTube and to read the latest research on BDD as I was preparing for this episode, because I'm just excited to hear that there are things that you all can do as, as the audience to help this process along. So I encourage you, if this sounds like you, if you have this perceived or flaw and it's just something that really impacts your day-to-day life so much that you feel like you can't do your daily living activities, I encourage you to reach out and to find 
something that works for you. Find, find someone that will you'll trust enough to be able to give you a plan that will help you overcome it because it isn't something that has to be with you forever. Also, there is a um, workbook that I recommend on Amazon. It's the Body Dysmorphic Disorder Workbook, CBT, and it will help you just so, so much to be able to get yourself through some of this stuff if you're not able to have access to a clinician. So check the show notes for that. And this concludes our discussion on BDD. I'm going to move into a question portion of the episode. All right, welcome to the Q&A portion of the eating disorder series. So I'm going to read off some comments from the Facebook group, and I'll answer and address some of these questions here. So someone asks, is eating disorder just a way to deal with emotions? Or I'm sorry, someone asked, how do you know if it's an eating disorder or if it's just a way to deal with emotions with just in quotes? So, I mean, if you start out using food to cope with emotions and it's this subclinical, right? So meaning it doesn't, the behaviors don't qualify or meet the uh, criteria for having an an eating disorder as per the DSM-5, it's never just a way to deal with emotions, right? It's just subclinical. And in the beginning, it's a, you know, sort of impulse, impulse driven, feel good coping skill that you can use. And it's, it's something that you can use as control and it sort of, um, yeah, it just, it helps with that feeling, even though it's a dysfunctional or a maladaptive coping skill. So if you continue to engage though, in this behavior, these dysfunctional disordered eating behaviors over time, it becomes something that your body sort of lashes onto like an addiction. And so it's no longer quote unquote, just a way to deal with emotions. So the more time that passes where you start engaging in disordered eating behaviors, even if you're not doing it, you know, as part of this sort of full-blown eating disorder, it becomes that. All right. Someone said emotional eating is disordered eating and I live with it. Um, in response to that. Yeah, I think, you know, emotional eating can be disordered. I think we have to, you know, really be careful with the terms that we toss around people emotionally eat. Um, I think of emotional eating when I think of like uh, birthday parties, you know, it's emotional. We have a birthday cake, you know, so we're associating like the day that you're born with cake, right? That's emotional eating. Is that disordered? No. But if you watch something on TV and it triggers a response of a trauma and a memory you had before, and then you go in the fridge and you're eating to gain, you know, access to that feel good feeling because you need to feel full or if you feel empty kind of thing, then yes, that's disordered eating. And if it doesn't happen daily or impede your everyday life, yes, it wouldn't qualify for, you know, this um, diagnosis of an eating disorder yet unless you did it often enough for it to become addictive. Now, you don't have to just live with emotional eating. Emotional eating is a coping skill, just like cutting self, right? Like shutting off, shutting down, latching, or lashing out. 
So if you want to engage in a different coping skill and you are an emotional eater, I don't want you to feel like you quote unquote just have to live with it. I want you to know that you can replace that behavior with other behaviors. It might take some support for through nutrition coaching or a nutritionist as, as well as some behavior modification and digging deep into that and then buying into other coping skills, but it can be done. Someone says so many people believe disordered eating has only to do with body image. So we've talked about that um, in previous episodes. So eating disorders have to do with control and emotional coping. Actually, if you remember from the, the episode about anorexia, individuals who are diagnosed with anorexia, it's often, you know, heavily genetic. So it starts there. Um, so it's, it's not has doesn't have anything really to do with body image so far as we know. I mean, years ago, we would say that, but someone can have anorexia when they quote unquote, look normal. You know, an eating disorder is something that is, it's an emotional coping. It's about control. It's genetic. It's about, you know, feeling shame. It's filling a void of emptiness. It's part of someone's identity and it's an addiction. So it's a complicated situation. So you don't want to look at someone who's like incredibly thin and just assume, oh, they have anorexia or someone who's at maybe a quote unquote normal weight and think, oh, they couldn't have an eating disorder. They look fine. Or even like, don't say that to someone like, you look fine. How could you have an eating disorder? Because an eating disorder, you know, really doesn't have anything to do with the way someone looks. It's the way their internal organs are functioning because of the way that the body is being kind of uh, tossed around with nutrient starvation and nutrient overload and then the vomiting and the purging behaviors and the stress. So that's really what's important to think about. All right, let's see. Someone said, share your experience. You seem pretty fit since Jake, but how are you before? I remember you mentioning someone being nasty to you eating a pizza slice when you were younger. Okay. Um, so it's, I think she means Jay. Um, and I have shared my experience for sure. So I won't get too much more into that now. But yeah, I'm fit because I need to move a lot because it makes me the most emotionally stable and decreases inflammation in my body. And before I didn't know those things. So I wasn't fit and I was never taught self-control around food. And I never knew that I had such a sugar addiction. So that's how it was before and after. Yeah, things are really great now, for sure. Absolutely. I said that hesitation because I was flipping my phone. But yeah, things are great. I eat paleo most of the time. When I don't want to eat paleo, I'll eat what else I want. And I have a really good balance of, you know, eating when I'm hungry, not eating when I'm full. I will work out on days where I'm not too stressed. So things are going well. Let's see. Um, we I read that one about the intermittent fasting. And someone said, can you talk about a good diet you found helped for us with this disorder? Maybe talk a little bit about the psychology behind eating disorders and trauma. Okay, so the good diet that I've found for helping is, a, is the paleo diet. Um, you can also do a vegan diet, and I think they have like a vegan, a vegan, a vegan paleo diet. And the reason why I find that that helps for people with disordered eating, especially if there's like a binge purge component to it, 
is because it takes away that the sugar, which is often addictive. But that's something, again, like I had mentioned last week, that works for me. So you really want to find what works for you and what you're willing to do. Um, In terms of the psychology behind eating disorders and trauma, as I mentioned, you know, eating disorders are a combination of genetic factors, of biological factors, and of experience. So if someone has trauma or if they feel that they need to be perfect or the only way they could be accepted is to be thin and they get bullied, they might start to control their environment by engaging in behaviors that you know, are that hurt that hurt their body, but give them external validation um, in school as a child, etc. So I think that we can reserve the rest of that looking at that link between trauma and eating disorders for later on. I want to really address that, you know, the book, The Body Keeps the Score and talk about that too. So won't get too far into that today, but that's a good question. And it trauma definitely plays into the development of and eating disorder. Someone also asks about the connection between impulse control and disordered eating. Well, I mean, if you're talking about binging, and then clearly there's a um, impulse control issue because binge eating is where you're impulsively eating sort of lots of food at one time, you know, in that two-hour window or a lot of calories at one time. So there absolutely is a connection between the two. A lot of individuals who struggle with a borderline personality disorder and an eating disorder also struggle with those ADHD-like symptoms like impulse control, emotion regulation, things like that. So these two do overlap. That's why it's very important that you seek treatment for your eating disorder and hopefully the BPD at the same time. Get medically stable and then start learning um, coping skills and strategies for impulse control so that you're better able to create a pause between the thing that's distressing to you and your environment and then that impulse to go and use binge eating as a coping skill. Awesome. So that's all the questions I received about eating disorders. I think one of the biggest questions I got and was multiple was just, you know, what do I tackle first, the BPD or the eating disorder? And Again, you really want to tackle that eating disorder if you are medically unstable and you want to seek out a medical professional and an expert to be able to let you know if that's the case. And ideally, you would get treatment for your BPD and your eating disorder at the same time as there is so much overlap there. So if you have any other additional questions, please send them in. I do have a bonus part to today's episode to answer a listener's voice question. So stay tuned for that. Hi, Rose. My name is Lindy. Um, I've been like re-recording this over and over because I am struggling to get this into one audio message. Um, but I really love your podcast it's so authentic and it's refreshing to hear someone talk about borderline the way that you do and um yeah I'm I guess I'm just wanted to share kind of my experience with borderline um and the fact that I was actually misdiagnosed for about seven years and during that time I was consistently in hospitals treatment centers um, group homes, etc. And, um, I just had a bunch of short-term therapists, and a couple of them said I had borderline traits, but 
um, I adamantly denied it. Hi, this is Lindy again, um, part two, dos. So, basically, um, any long-term providers that I had also just kind of agreed with me that, oh, I don't have it and, you know, I'm fine, and ultimately enabled me to continue the behaviors that I have and not address them. And this went on for, like I said, seven years. I was, like, in the perfect spot to be actually diagnosed and treated for the kind of struggles that I was having. Um, But I just couldn't accept it. And I think that a lot of my doctors thought it would just be easier to, like, just agree with me and not address the real issue that's really difficult and stigmatized. I guess at this point I'm really frustrated because I think that borderline is so stigmatized that I thought it was just the worst thing that you could ever have. And instead of facing it head on, I was just overly medicated and you know, didn't address any of the behaviors that I needed to address. And now I'm into my 20s, I have no experience in the real world, and I don't have the skills that I could have actually gained about having relationships and having a consistent job and a stable sense of identity with Borderline. And um, I'm just wondering... If you have any um, ideas on how you can accept having borderline in it when it's... Hi, Lindy. So I just want to thank you so much for your voice message um, messages. That was awesome. So um, first, uh, when I first heard your message, I was cooking and I put everything down. I went to go record and I recorded a bunch of things to say at once, which is interesting because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is so intense. And it is. I mean, your story is so relatable. You know, there are so many people out there struggling the way you are. So I want to thank you for sharing your experience. And I want to say, you know, that on behalf of like the, I guess, psychological community, I'm sorry. I feel like it's something that is it's hard to be um, direct and honest with people, especially at a young age. And it's really tough to even want to make that call if you label someone with borderline personality disorder. The fear at a young age is that they'll identify as that. Um, the fear is that there's not enough pattern of behavior to look at someone's history to be able to give them a diagnosis. I mean, all things aside, it probably feels awful to think that you know you could have done something sooner. And I get that. I just, you know, I want to challenge you in this space and say, um, like, what about the flip side to that? You know, I could say, how do I deal with having this diagnosis? And I haven't gotten to do any of those things. Or I can say, great, they messed up and that stinks. And instead of allowing them to control the future, I'm going to look at all the things I don't know how to do and start trying to figure out how to do them. I know that's a hard place to be, especially having been in homes and things like that. I mean, it's incredibly difficult. But, you know, having the answer of what's going on with you means that you have the key of how to proceed forward. 
So it's not a diagnosis that's so terrible that you can't overcome. There's some quirks, there's some deficits, and there's a lot of passion and a lot of love. And you can learn new things. You can absolutely learn new things. So what I would encourage you not to do is to camp out in the place of vengeance and resentment and to, you know, be frustrated that you didn't get the life that you live. If you're going to be angry for a while, that makes sense because you're grieving the loss of that life that you thought that you were going to have or just grieving the loss of that time you had because you could have been working on recovery. So you will feel anger and go through the stages of grief, and that's important to feel that and to work with someone who can help you through that. At the same time, it's also true that camping out in that spot and trying to come to terms with what what they did to you kind of thing, it will stall your recovery. I would suggest that you find a clinician or a team or a coach that you're comfortable with and that you are willing to listen to and start walking towards being the person you want to be because like all of these people that I work with kind of individually and through the group, Lindy, we all have to go through the process of figuring out who we want to be and learning the skills that make that person real. And that's the journey that you're going to be on regardless of whether they told you that a year ago, two years ago. So acceptance is beginning to walk the path of change and committing to that. And anytime those thoughts come up, of why did this happen to me? How could they do this? I can't believe I wasted those time. that time. Allow yourself to grieve and continue to do the work of recovery. There will come a time and place where you can reflect back on that, but it has to be once you've gotten your, your, uh, a good start and a good pace in your recovery journey. Again, thank you so much, Lindy, for sharing that question, for, willing to be, for being willing to be vulnerable today. And I just, I know that so many people will appreciate your story and we're sending you positive energy and just hoping that you continue on that recovery path and you don't look back, let go of the past and reach forward to the future. Just a public service announcement here. So I am going to be posting the application for the groups. We're going to take applications this time so we can assess where people are at in treatment and assess where people are in terms of the recovery journey and be able to group people appropriately. Right now, I have two groups occurring on Friday between the hours of 11 a.m and 1.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So if that time frame sounds like it works for you, those are the first two groups that I'm holding, and they're going to be held mid-October for 10 weeks. They include texting through coaching. They include group texting like Grace talked about on her podcast and a structured treatment as well as group support. So if you are interested in joining this coaching group, send me an email and I will send you the link to the application as soon as it populates up next week on our website. So exciting. 
Um, in addition to that, I just want everyone to know you can purchase gear if you want hoodies, things to represent the Phoenix transformation, the transformation of who you're becoming. Check that out on our website. Scroll down to the bottom of the page, click Teespring, or you can click the link at the end of the episode. Remember in the show notes, you're also going to get the Body Dysmorphia Workbook for CBT and the link to that. And you're also going to get a link to a test you can take to see whether or not you might have some body dysmorphic disorder traits. Thank you so much. We'll talk next week. Okay, thanks for listening. That was From Borderline the Beautiful, a production of Skeeter's Strength Mindset Coaching Systems. We help frustrated individuals, resentful couples, and disconnected families navigate through tough times. Visit us on the web at skeetersstrength.com. If you like this show, remember, you can hear it on Anchor or Apple Podcasts or Pocket Cast or any app you use to listen to podcasts. Subscribe to get a new episode every Monday. Next time on the show, we're going to continue our eating disorder series. If you want to get in touch, you can leave me a voice message. Some of you had some comments and questions from last episode, so let's hear them. I'd love to hear whatever questions you have too. Just download that Anchor mobile app, search for From Borderline to Beautiful, and tap the message button to send me a voice message. So... If you like this podcast, not only can you download that Anchor app, but you can help us get this message out to so many more people. Head over to Apple and offer us that five-star rating and let me know what you're thinking about some of our material. The more stars and higher rating we get, the more people will have access to From Borderline to Beautiful, hope and help for individuals with BPD.